Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we all can do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, Friday, Friday. It is January the 13th, 2023, and I gotta tell you, I'm still feeling weird saying it's 2023, but it is. Uh, I remember You remember back in the day when people actually used to write checks? I haven't written a check because the few checks we do have to write as checks, my, my wife does it now. She's like the accountant and the personal assistant and the show scheduler and my PR person and all that stuff now. So I got it good. But I remember back when I used to pay all my bills instead of online with checks. And when you went into that new year, how many times did you write the wrong year before you started writing the right year. Usually it was in about February you started getting the number right. Anyway, nothing to do with what we're talking about today. It is time on Friday, Friday, Friday for Expert Council Q&A Show of the Week. I've got Dr. Ron Paul and his team today. Dr. Paul has a segment called 100 Years of Being Afraid of Freedom. And it makes me think of all the memes I've seen with the two little kids like hiding in the corner. Have you ever seen this? And, like, they're terrified, and the thing in front of them is like a little rabbit, and it's not the rabbit from Monty Python, for those old enough to know about the the, the Monty Python rabbit, right? It, it's just a little bunny, and they're terrified of it. And there's so many things that are basically the American people are terrified of, and when you distill it down, it's freedom. Dan McAdams will talk about how the per- Pentagon just overturned the military vaccine mandate, but how it's, like, a day late and dollar short. It's more like... 300 days late and a couple billion dollars or trillion dollars short. Chris Rossini will talk about how centralized power has made America bankrupt. And America was never supposed to be a centralized government. It was supposed to be decentralized. That was the point of a true republic. Sean Mills will give you some thoughts on monolithic dome homes. Uh, Nicole Sauce will talk about uses for freeze-dried eggs and the fundamental reality that if you buy freeze-dried eggs from, um, you know, like a, a provider, like a retail provider, big giant number 10 cans, they are what they are, they have the nutrition they have, but even in a dehydrated state, they will never live up to what, like, a real pastured egg is, but there's still plenty of uses for them. And Nick Ferguson will talk about fodder trees, which that's all he talks about anymore, right? It's because it's his thing, but for cattle, and, and how to do that right. Ben Falk... We'll talk about self-sewing useful and edible flowers. Our dog bones. We'll talk about the health benefits of chestnuts. This is un, this is not really a question. This is unprompted. But he also is going to talk about the reintroduction of a GMO blight immune American chestnut. Should we be doing that? I actually covered that a long time ago. I'm not sure on this one. I don't hate the concept of genetic modification. Especially when it's done to accelerate a thing that could happen anyway. I'll give you some of my additional thoughts on it when we have bones. And then I am going to tell you about one of the most unholy alliances in the pharmaceutical industry I've ever heard of in my life. It is gut-wrenching, revolting, and disgusting. I tagged Ken Berry on this uh, on Twitter. And... I, a couple days before this, I tagged him with a story about our medical industry now recommending gastric bypass surgery for children as young as 13 instead of diet modification. And between that and what I'm going to tell you today, if he looks at them both, if Ken Berry dies, I will just say it in advance, it's not from the vax, 
He didn't get the clot shot. I killed him with an aneurysm because his blood pressure might go to like a bazillion between the two of these things. But wait till I tell you this. This is one of these things like you, I, I, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You are going to say, that can't be right. Then you're going to investigate it and you're going to go, I need to treat Jack the way Jack treated Bill Mollison while he was still with us. No matter how ridiculous the claim If you dig deep enough, you're going to find out he wouldn't make the claim if he couldn't back it up and prove to you it's true. This is one of the most disgusting, murderous, I said murderous, things I have ever heard in my life. And the problem is half of y'all will be like, oh my God. And the other half will be like, I don't understand. Filter the chlorine out of your water if you don't understand when I talk about this, and uh, keep listening. You will eventually. It's it's revolting. And with that, let's go ahead and dig on into today's show, starting out with Ron Paul's Liberty Highlights of the Week. Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini will be on in that order, and I'll be back, and then we'll bridge into the next segment. Jacob Hornberger, who does a very, very good job on Future Freedom Foundation, had an article out this week that I thought was very good. Because it's been known in uh, libertarian circles that one of the freest times that we had in the United States was the latter part of the 19th century and the beginning of the uh, uh, 20th century. And uh, that that was uh, the 18, 1870 up to the beginning of uh, World War One. And uh, it, it, you can point it out. Prices went down. Prosperity went up and there was no war going on. But then he makes a quick list. Uh, just think of what he he is emphasizing, because uh, this has been known and it's been recognized that this period of time has been one of the best times for economic growth that anybody ever was able to record. But then again, the warmongers came. And uh, we were maneuvered into World War One and World War Two and all the rest and into the empire building and the mess we have. But th this is what uh, uh, Bumper po pointed out. Bumpers for J Jacob. <laughs> okay. He, he points out no passports in this period of time. No Pentagon. Uh, no military establishment. No military industrial complex. Uh, no CIA. No NSA. <laughs> Can this be true? <laughs> No FBI, no foreign aid, no military bases, no no minimum wage laws, and on and on. And the the truth about what's going on in government isn't going to originate with the change of the speakership. That mm. is not going to make much difference. We have to change our minds and change our attitudes, and the people have to be involved. This is something that is a long time coming, and it may not come as much of a surprise, but the Pentagon has officially overturned the military vaccine mandate, uh, which they, of course, had in place since uh, late 2021. Basically, every military member of the U.S. military and I believe contractors were forced to take the COVID vaccine or to be fired. Um, they did not grant exemptions. There were lawsuits that came in where they didn't even consider the exemptions, religious exemptions and other exemptions. And if you look at this next clip after that, this is from that same article which is in the Daily Caller talking about how many people were affected however after more than a year of legal challenges to the mandate and at least 8,400 discharges for refusing the vaccine Congress instructed Austin to reverse course in the new NDAA for 2023 
and you know tens of thousands in the military that took a shot that was unnecessary. We know now that it was unnecessary. We know actual science now that people have been able to speak out a bit. That these are for the by and large young people that are in the military. Uh, they're generally in good shape. Our standards haven't slipped that much. Uh, they're not recruiting me. Uh, they're in generally very good physical shape. Their risk of dying from COVID was virtually zero, yet they forced them to take an experimental shot. And you say, well, why did they do that? They said, well, we might suffer a readiness problem if, if these people start getting sick. No. The fact is they were used as political pawns by the administration. The administration wanted to force people that it had control over to take these shots because they wanted to, to force other people that they don't have direct control over to take the shots as well. So talk about... Respect the military? No. They disrespect the military. They harm the military. They hurt these people. They treat them like pawns, uh, all for political reasons. And I think that's actually disgusting. Our country was not meant to be this monolithic, uh, centralized power uh, because problems are best solved locally by the people that are involved. You know, you mentioned Ukraine and our foreign policy. Uh, you know, what happens locally affects us much more than what happens in Ukraine and Syria. It doesn't mean that you don't have to care about Ukraine and Syria. You just have to face reality that, you know, uh, you, you face the problems that are in front of you. And our lives are so complex, you can't even worry about your neighbor or the next town over. And you th you're supposed to worry about other countries, North Korea, this, uh, they always have a carousel of countries, and it all costs us money. And that's the thing, you know, when politicians locally take your money from you and you could be against some of it, you know, let's say they want to uh, build something, you know, politicians love to do stuff like that. And you at least see what they're doing. You, you, you can keep your eye on them. When Washington, D.C. takes our money, we can't keep an eye on anything. They do whatever they want with that money. Look how a hundred billion dollars like nothing went across to supposedly the Ukraine. Who knows what is going on with that $100 billion? I mean, people know, the people that are involved, but the rest of us don't know, and we won't. So, you know, we have to start getting back to local. Local, that's where the problems are, are fixed, decentralized, because this centralization is, it has bankrupted us. That's what's happened. Good stuff from that group, as always. I don't want to say too much more. I do just want to reiterate, though, what Dr. Paul was talking about, being afraid of freedom. We live in a world, and I keep using this word, and some people get really offended by it, okay? Domesticated. The more domesticated an animal becomes, the more fear it has of its natural surroundings and its natural environment. If you take a a jungle fowl, which is the, the ancestor of our chicken, they all come from jungle fowl in Southeast Asia, there's plenty of things that will kill them in the wilderness, and they certainly have a survival strategy, and they certainly are aware, but they operate in a very fearless manner. They take care of their young, etc., and now look at your backyard chicken, you know, not so much, not so much. And that's a bird. You would think a more complex like an or organism like a human would be harder to domesticate, but it's exactly wrong. A human being is much easier to domesticate. The human being has a much more methodical process for thinking about the future than any of the animals that we've domesticated. You know, probably the most intelligent animal that we've domesticated at large is probably the horse. 
And even a horse cannot think the way that a human can, though it's kind of striking how much mental uh, acuity that a, a horse actually has. They're pretty phenomenal animals, but they're nothing compared to us. So a human can much more think out six weeks, six months, six years, and what will happen if. And if you go generation upon generation, instead of selective breeding, you use selective conditioning. You get a human being who is totally afraid of his innate natural uh, stasis, his innate natural state as an organism on this planet. And they become infinitely easy to control through the use of fear. And fear has always been the mechanism of control of government. And, and the thing that we have had governments of the world specifically target to make you afraid of is freedom. And they do it in a million ways. Well, if we don't have all these government programs, the poor people will come take your stuff. Who will build the roads? Oh, think of the children. Everybody will die in a cataclysm. The earth is boiling. It's getting too cold. It's getting too hot. It's climate weirding. We don't know. Gas stoves will kill you. And people just comply. I keep saying it. They want you domesticated. You need to rewild. You need to go freaking feral, people. One way we can really take away fear is providing our own needs and feeling secure in our ability to do so housing is a huge part of that if i was building a house from scratch today i would definitely consider monolithic dome home as a way to go especially living in a place where we have these swirling clouds of death called tornadoes for all the other great stuff you're going to hear about these structures can take a straight on hit and not blink you might blow a window or two out, but that's about it. This is like a fortress. Here to talk more about monolithic dome homes, Sean Mills, professional engineer. Sean, take it away. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com, and today I am going to answer a question about dome homes. Uh, I don't live in a dome home. I've never built an actual dome home I have built some geodesic domes before, but I've done a significant amount of research. Um, I was doing some research into some alternative building methods in Texas, and I, I'm going to try to answer this question the best I can. So the question comes from a gentleman in West Tennessee named Nick, who says, I bought some land in West Tennessee, and I'm looking to put some sort of quote-unquote alternative housing on it. Dome homes look like a good uh, mix of price, protection, and energy efficiency. Just looking to see what your general thoughts are on this. Uh, what are the pros and cons of geodesic and monolithic dome homes? Okay, so first, let's get some uh, definitions out of the way. So monolithic dome is just a type of dome that's made out of concrete. It may also have some insulation on it. And overall, the thickness of the dome structure itself um, creates a pretty good R value. And the uh, monolith uh, itself helps create a pretty consistent temperature, reduces the amount of energy required for both heating and cooling. Um, that can lead to significant cost savings on energy bills versus a regular stick-built rectangular slash triangular home. Um, Monolithic domes are very durable. Uh, they're strong. Obviously, the concrete is reinforced, and it's designed to be resistant to natural disasters such as tornadoes, hurricanes, and earthquakes. 
Um, they also require less maintenance than traditional homes. Um, there are people that say that living in a dome is um, better for, I guess, your energy or chakra or um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they feel like your sense of well-being is actually uh, benefited from living in a dome because the energy that you exude, I guess, is reflected back towards you. Um, I think that's a little bit woo-woo, but I will also say that having stayed in some monolithic domes before, it's different. Uh, not necessarily better, but there's just a different vibe to it. Um, they're not necessarily less expensive on a per square foot basis than a traditional home. Uh, your cost per square foot for the shell is going to be around the same as your cost per square foot for building a house. Um, and it can be a little tricky on the interior to finish because, well, all your exterior walls are round. Um, there can also be some things that need to be done around uh, making your entrances and or making uh, openings for windows. Uh, I've seen some folks that have a special form that they put in um, for the windows and the doorway. I've seen folks build multiple domes and connect them together. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do there. Obviously, all the customization um, is nice, but it does create some additional cost. And so now what is a geodesic dome? A geodesic dome is a dome that's made up of triangles. So you've got triangles whose sides are a prescribed uh, length, depending on how large of a dome you're actually going to build. And uh, they, that was popularized by Buckminster Fuller in the 50s, who developed the method for constructing those domes using a network of interconnected horizontal pieces making triangles. And it's the strategic application of those triangles that makes the dome. And again, those they're very strong. Uh, they can take side loads and, you know, weight down on them like snow loads. Um, they're resistant to earthquakes, um, not necessarily resistant to fire just based on, you know, the fact that it's a geodesic dome. But if you use a specific type of um you know, you can you can make them fireproof based on the type of uh, building materials that you use. Now, the interesting thing is that you can build both monolithic domes and geodesic domes out of aircrete. And so aircrete, um, it does have some limitations in terms of size. So you can't build uh, as large of a structure as you can with a regular reinforced concrete monolithic dome. Um, but you can actually build, if you build forms, you can actually pour uh, geodesic dome um, triangles, so to speak, and then arrange them uh, into a dome. Uh, so that's a pretty interesting thing. Um, any of those domes are going to have that combination of strength, stability, energy efficiency, uh, and they're gonna, all going to have the same challenges. I think in West Tennessee, where earthquake is going to be your bigger, you know, we don't have a lot of, um, and I lived in West Tennessee for five years, so you don't have a lot of um, fire, you know, wildfire type events. Um, you do have tornadoes and you do have the potential 
for a big earthquake with being that close to the New Madrid fault line. So if I were building and I wanted to go with a dome type structure in West Tennessee, I would definitely go with a monolithic dome. And um, I know there's a member of the community that has built one recently. He used a company out of Texas. And what they do is they inflate a form and then they spray um, gunite uh, concrete to the inside of that form um, that, you know, after they've reinforced it with rebar um, or there's actually a new rebar product that's made out of basalt. Uh, that's pretty interesting. It's just as strong and about a tenth of the weight. Um, and I believe it's actually cheaper, uh, when you're, you know, strength to strength is cheaper versus weight to weight is strength. It's cheaper. And, um, then once that's done, I think they spray some sort of, uh, kind of spray foam insulation on top of that. And then the form actually stays on the building and it kind of becomes the outer waterproof membrane. And then they put a covering over that to prevent any, uh, damage from like UV rays and such. And, and you're good to go. Um, so again, you know, he reported that the cost per square foot was in line with any other type of um, construction method. You do have to pour a slab before that project starts and your footers around the edges of the slab have to be pretty substantial. Uh, so you may need to have some civil work done with some gravel and things like that, which also limits, you know, if you've got a property that is kind of out in the sticks and, hard to get to or a lot of elevation changes, bringing in, you know, 20 uh, concrete trucks may not be feasible. Um, so that's another thing you got to think about with the alternative construction is sometimes these, uh, you know, these places that allow that type of construction are tough enough to get to where it also limits what you're able to do. Um, if you were to go with a geodesic dome type uh, system, uh, I would go with the kind where you can buy the um, the metal um, kits, basically, and assemble them. Um, I actually looked at one point of doing kind of like a compound out of geodesic domes, where like each bedroom would be its own dome, and you might have like a kitchen dome and a living room dome, and they'd all be connected around maybe a courtyard. Uh, so that's an idea that you might be able to run with, because uh, you could build something like that literally off of a stepladder. So... Um, great, um, great idea. Uh, I'm interested to, to hear back from you and, uh, see how that alternative building project is going on. Uh, but those are my thoughts. Well, guys, keep getting the questions in and I will ge keep getting them answered for Jack. Thanks and have a great day. Great stuff is always from Sean. And I'll just reiterate that again, if I was building a house today from the ground up, I would deeply look at this. One of the things I think we need though, for any of these homes specifically where the shape of the structure is unconventional, like round, we need to come up with more ways to allow for financing. I, I found a beautiful dome home um, south of where I live now. When I was looking for, for land and, and property, and I found this place. It was amazing. Seven and a half acres. The house was selling for $260,000. Much better soil than I have up here. Deep black clay soil. I could have had ponds everywhere on that place. It was amazing. I looked at the kitchen and thought, this is a $70,000 kitchen. You know why the house was only 260? They couldn't sell it because nobody could get freaking financing on it. So that's the big thing that we need to do with all these alternative building structures. When we talk about parallel economies, that's a problem. And what did we talk about yesterday? Problems are what? 
opportunities. Uh, because the city of Mansfield, where the home was located, had no problem assessing the value and assessing a property tax on it. It was the, 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 the banks and the appraisers that couldn't figure out how much it was worth because they wouldn't appraise it based on square footage and being a house. Crazy, I know. Uh, next up, to, we have Nicole Sauce with some thoughts on using freeze-dried eggs. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Hollerist Coffee with a question from Sarah. Sarah wants to know, how do you de deal with freeze-dried eggs? You see, she bought a bunch of freeze-dried eggs back when she thought being a prepper was stacking cans, and now she's trying to figure out how to use them in a way that is palatable. My experience with freeze-dried eggs are from Holmes freeze-dried eggs. So I think we will have a little bit of a different perspective on that. And here's why. I believe the commercially freeze-dried eggs use eggs that are commercially produced. And those eggs aren't very tasty, especially if you're used to having homegrown eggs. No matter what you do to commercial eggs or commercially freeze-dried eggs, they're still going to be commercially produced, pale yellow yolk, yucky eggs. That said, I will tell you what I do to my home freeze-dried eggs to make them tasty because I've been living off of those for breakfast for several months now. You see, my ducks lay seasonally and right now is not laying time in, in duck coop land. And so because I have a Harvest Right freeze dryer at home, when we've had surplus, I've been freeze drying them 60 eggs at a time. So what I have is a powder of freeze dried eggs shoved into mason jars with oxygen absorbers. And when they come out, it's kind of cakey. It's not super powdery. And so what I do is I will take the egg powder out and I use a fork to stir it in a bowl without any liquid until the powder has no lumps in it. That's super important because if you rehydrate it with lumps in it, there's inconsistent absorption of water and you end up with a weird mouthfeel in your eggs. So once that's done... I then add water to it. The ratio I use for home freeze-dried eggs is one to one. So one cup of eggs, and then I add one cup of room temperature water from my Berkey, as a matter of fact. That will feed two people scrambled eggs. I pour the water in, and I stir it with that same fork. I go away for about 15 minutes, come back, stir it again, make sure there's no extra powder residue on the bottom, and then I add whatever salt or pepper or seasonings I want, And then I just cook it like normal, and it turns out really well. It, it tastes just like scrambled eggs. The mouthfeel is right on. It's perfect, and it's delicious. Now, for commercial freeze-dried eggs, if they come out lumpy from your can, I would do that. I would powderize them and then add the liquid and then cook them as scrambled eggs. Now, if that is not palatable to you, though, Sarah... The other way I would use those up, because that would tell me that you're just probably not liking the quality of your egg powder. Start using it in your baking. Because anything that calls for eggs in baking or whole eggs in other recipes, and you, you know, if it's egg yolk only, you're not going to use this, right? Because it has whites in it. You can substitute the egg equivalent, one egg equivalent of your powdered eggs for, with water, so rehydrated, for an egg 
and it performs the same function. So two tablespoons of powder equal one egg in my world. Your can will probably have different instructions depending on what you're doing. Use it up that way. That's a great way to go through it. And then just remember when you're when you're setting up your pantry, <laughs> store what you use, use what you store and store the, the stuff that tastes good that you're actually going to be able to cycle through on your on your family moving forward. Um, I'm really glad you asked me this question because I think a lot of people have powdered things they're not sure what to do with. And even if you don't like how your 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 quote unquote preps taste or rehydrate, there are alternative ways to use them that you can go through those sorts of supplies. That said, I would like to mention my other little freeze-dried hack is with milk. I have a bunch of freeze-dried milk as well, and I rehydrate it at 50% water to what's recommended, and it's, it almost behaves like heavy cream. So when I don't have a local source for yummy heavy cream or fresh milk, I will take freeze-dried milk and just rehydrate it 50% water to what is supposed to be added back and use that in my coffee, and that's delicious too. Now, since this has been such a short segment, I have a second question in, and this one comes from Joshua. Joshua asked me, do you have a strategy towards setting up crockpot meals? I noticed you've been having a lot of crockpot meals in the last few weeks, and I'm wondering if there's like a certain percentage of water or ratio or types of meats that you're using to plan those meals because it seems like a great way to save time. And the answer to that is this. Yes, we are in the middle of construction chaos here at the Holler Homestead. My bathroom remodel was supposed to take a week and we are starting on week three and almost done now. But as a result of that, I haven't spent a lot of time or allocated a lot of time on cooking really robust involved meals in the kitchen. I want my time on that bathroom. As a result of that, I have had a lot of crock pot meals because you can basically spend 10 minutes setting it up in the morning, turn the thing on, walk away, and you have delicious food at the end of the day. In fact, this is a great way if you are eating seasonally or living off the stuff you produce on your homestead to still be able to cook from scratch without spending a lot of time cooking from scratch. So the way I approach any crock pot meal is I do center them around a meat. So it could be chicken, it could be beef, it could be lamb, it could be pork. Those are the four I choose from here. I'm not a fan of cooking fish slow and low in a crock pot for a hundred years. And then I choose the cuts of meat usually that would be tougher if just cooked to you know, 130 degrees, which is what I set my sous vide on when I'm when I'm doing steaks or whatever. And, you know, that could be something like a brisket, which actually you can sous vide it at 130 for 48 hours. And it turns out tender, but that's not a crock pot. <laughs> I'll choose, you know, a roast or some other sort of of cut. If it's bone in. I will add maybe eight ounces of water or white wine or red wine, depending on what flavor profile I want to that. And no more liquid, because what happens with the bone-in meats is liquid cooks out, and you will end up with a crock pot full of liquid if you just cook that. And then once once I've put the meat in and the liquid in, and I always add an onion, 
I then think, what flavor profile do I want? Do I want something Italian flavored? Okay, I might add Italian seasonings and tomatoes and cook that low and slow for six to eight hours. Or do I want a curry, Indian curry, Thai curry, Japanese curry? What kind of curry do I want? I'll put those spices in, cook it low for six to eight hours. I usually cook on the low setting of my crock pot and not the high setting. So I don't have to come and change it to turn it down midway through the day. Or do I want something a little frisky? So I might add tomatoes, Italian seasoning, let it go for six hours and then throw a little bit of heavy cream in at the end. And extra garlic, that makes a pretty tasty sauce on the on the chicken. It's a great complement to it. Or maybe I want more of a German approach. So I'll go garlic, onions, and dill. That's sort of German, sort of German slash Russian, that sort of flavor profile. Mexican, I'll do some hot peppers and some cumin. That's how I approach crock pot meals. Uh, this month I'm not eating vegetables, so pretty much there are no extra vegetables in. But if I'm going to add carrots or turnips or Jerusalem artichokes or beets or radishes or cauliflower or anything that's, you know, it doesn't need six hours to cook, I will two hours before dinner throw in, like have them pre-cut up in the morning, throw those into the crock pot at the very end. And then I always add salt and pepper at the very end to taste. That's how I approach most of my I'm in a hurry crock pot meals. There are a lot of other really fancy things you can do with the crock pot, but I find this tool to be very helpful to me when I'm in a busy time. And what's really cool if you heat with wood is during winter when your wood stove's on, if there's room on top to cook, you can put, you can take a coated cast iron Dutch oven and basically do the same thing by putting all of those ingredients on your stove and then you don't even need to use electricity. So winter time, I tend to use the crock pot or the crock pot approach on my wood stove and nobody ever complains about what comes off of there. I can just say that. I think the fun part of cooking is just learning what different countries use for flavors and then, you know, because with the Thai, for example, you'll have hot and sweet and and like a lemony sort of flavor all together in, in one thing. Or with Italian, you have garlic and oregano and um, some basil. Those are good flavors for the Italian seasonings. I think it's fun to learn those. And then you can sort of dial the same exact quote unquote meal to a totally different flavor profile and not get bored. That's the skill I would build. The crock pot basically does everything for you just by cooking low and slow and coming straight out of there at the end of the day. It takes five minutes to serve dinner and you're done. I love using that as a time saver. Anyway, I hope you guys were interested in both of these segments. If you have questions for me, send them to Jack TSPC in the subject line. And I am Nicole Sauce from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast. Also, I wanted to mention, I do a spring workshop that's badass, and we usually sell out in about half an hour of tickets. They are going on sale this coming Saturday, the 14th at 9 a.m. That will be at livingfreeintennessee.com. Guys, go out, make it a great week. I am going to just add on to this. that yeah, Nicole's stuff is great. I'll leave it where it is. But the one thing that has me rethinking my entire opinion about freeze dryers for myself is eggs. We sell eggs really, really well, but we are not the big operation we were at one time. We decided we didn't want to do that anymore. 
And so we don't have like restaurant customers or anything anymore. So we do have kind of a, a boom and bust cycle with egg production, even though you can even it out with incubation strategies like I talked about yesterday. Uh, or not yesterday, on Wednesday. Was it yesterday? Whatever day it was that I talked about the incubator. So we do have these kind of boom and bust cycles. And because of that, our customer base isn't what it once was. So in the height of a boom, we have a lot of eggs that we end up freezing and stuff like that. And being able to freeze dry them alone makes me think, maybe I should reach out to the Harvest Right people and see if we can cut some kind of deal. And maybe I can get you guys some kind of a discount. Who knows? So I'm going to be working on that this month uh, when I get back from Greater Reset. So I would say really it's a February project to try to bring Harvest Right, who makes the only consumer-level freeze dryer I know of, the one everybody I know like Nicole Sauce and John Willis have, into the fold over at TSP. If anybody actually has a contact there, that could help me with that, please let me know. Next up, Nick Ferguson on fodder trees for moo-moos. Yeah, for cattle. There's there's really no limit, if you understand fodder, to the livestock we commonly use. You can, you can help feed almost everything we eat with fodder trees, or as they used to call it back in the day, especially in like what's present-day United Kingdom and all, tree hay. Nick, how do we feed cattle with tree fodder. Nick Ferguson here with an answer for Lee on fodder trees, so let's jump right into it. Uh, For Nick Ferguson, how do you manage fodder trees for cattle? We live in southeastern Pennsylvania and have five to six mature weeping willow trees in the pasture. It's about seven acres of pasture, and I am running three dexter cows with calves. Nice. I'm interested in getting your package of fodder trees and notice that one of the species is the same willow tree, if I'm not mistaken. You are. It's not the same. My cows take the leaves off the height they can reach, and I'm interested to know how you would manage, how you would recommend to manage a mature tree for fodder. I would estimate their height around 40 to 50 feet and 25 to 30 feet in diameter. They're in an area of pasture with a creek close by that doesn't dry up, and we are also just down from a commercial building dry pond. How would you manage these trees for fodder? How would you manage? How would managing these mature trees for fodder look differently than new seedlings I might buy from you? Thank you. Well, let's answer the first thing uh, to get that clarified first. Uh, weeping willow is Salix babylonica, and the willow I sell is a hybrid willow, which is a cross between a couple different species, and definitely not weeping willow. Uh, weeping willow has a pendulous growth habit; it it droops. A weeping growth habit. And the one I sell has an upright growth habit, just like the the native white and black willow. It grows about twice as fast as weeping willow, which means it makes a lot more leaf matter per acre of cultivation. So if you're looking for leaf matter production, the hybrid willow will make more per square foot compared to weeping willow. So that's that's the the big differences. Now, for your main question, how would I manage the mature willows compared to the trees that I sell, the hybrid willows? Um, So that's kind of complicated because it can be very different or it could be exactly the same. Um, Because I'm selling bare root trees and unrooted cuttings, um, these hybrid willows will turn into mature trees that you could manage exactly the same. So it could be exactly the same, like that. Um, or because these are young trees, you can manage them from a much lower height and manage them very differently. So 
since the willows you already have are mature trees, you must pollard them. You can't coppice them. They're just way too big for that. Um, so you're going to have to pollard them to force them to produce lots of shoots close enough to the ground to harvest and use. And by close enough to the ground, you're going to be 10, 15, maybe even 20 feet off the ground to get shoots off of them. So this is more dangerous because you're working from elevation. So I'd suggest looking up the term pollarding on YouTube or Google to get an idea of what that looks like, and then get to pruning your willows to produce shoots at a harvestable height. Basically, you're going to get on a ladder and prune off branches to drop to the ground where your cattle would strip the leaves and enjoy the fodder. Um, or you could also harvest those branches, you know, drop them to the ground and collect them before the cows get to them, and you can shred those leaves and uh narrow branches, just the really skinny pencil-sized branches, into buckets or barrels to ferment into silage for winter feed or feeding whenever you need it. Uh, my trees work perfectly well using the same management system. Um, basically, you just protect those young trees until they get large enough to not be knocked over by the cattle, and then you pollard them above the browse height. And since they're younger, you could pollard them at about six to eight feet above the ground where the cattle can't get to the branches and then you don't have to work from an, a ladder you could just reach up there with a pair of loppers or um, a saw and just knock those branches off when you need them so that's the advantage in these younger trees you get to pick the height that you're going to manage them um, pollarding is a management system for livestock inclusive grazing. You can keep stock under the fodder trees because they can't get the leaves which are up above the browse height. You know, if you're dealing with pygmy goats, that browse height might be four foot above the ground and you can work at, you know, chest high elevation to pollard the trees. That's great. But with dexters, you're probably going to be working at at least five foot um, maybe five and a half foot just to get above where they can reach. The alternative style um, that you can't do with those mature weeping willows, you can do with these younger hybrid willows, is to coppice them. And my trees will be suited for this because you can manage them at ground level. So you'll essentially plant these trees, you let them grow for a year or two, and then you essentially cut the trees down to a stump every winter. And you harvest the top three quarters of the tree during the summer, and you use those leaves and thin branches as fresh feed, dried or fermented into silage. This is like the very, very simplified version of this. Um, you really need to get a little bit more education on how to do this to make sure you're not over harvesting. Uh, but basically, being at ground level, um, you're forced to keep the livestock out of the area. But it's way easier to harvest and manage the trees like that because you're dealing with things at, like, waist height. So I'll have more videos coming out on this next year showing you guys what they look like because I'm doing that on my property. But that's the gist of it. I hope that answers your question. Keep them coming, everyone, and make sure you send in your consulting requests because I'm working on schedules for a Texas tour around the end of February to 1st of March, and I might even be headed all the way up to Wisconsin and Michigan this July, as well as a tour through the Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, that, that whole uh, region that I normally tour in what looks like May. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Great stuff from Nick, and... 
I, I, I challenge people to learn more about this, especially if you are raising larger stock. It's great for rabbits and things like that, too, but when you go from sheep and above, a lot of the concerns that the environmental crowd bring, if we can combine good rotational grazing with fodder, we don't just eliminate the concerns, we destroy them and banish them to hell where they belong. We can actually build systems that are tree-lined civopasture systems using, even if we don't grow any kind of fruit or nut mast, just fodder trees, where not only can we provide a lot of feed to ruminants from the fodder, but if you do the spacing right, you can literally get root mass underneath most of the open pasture that the, the ruminants maintain as grass. It's like a safety net, an excess nutrient accumulator, and then we feed the biomass back to the, the, the animals, and we can use biomass for other, like there's biomass for them to eat, and there's other biomass that can actually be done other things like biochar, artist charcoal, uh, and, and uh, compostable carbon and nitrogen to bring fertility to other places. It's almost limitless what we can do, and it's something that we need a lot more, and I keep telling Nick, dude, Thou needeth, writeth, a booketh, abouteth thy fodder trees. You need to make this your thing fully, because uh, he's doing more work with it than just about anybody I know. With that, let's move on. We're all going to talk about self-sowing useful flowers uh, that can be edible or medicinal or other things like that with Ben Falk. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Um as far as self-sowing, that's a great question, self-sowing flowers and veggies. The ones that do the best for us are cilantro. It's like always self-sowing. Uh, calendula, great weed in the garden. One of our best weeds. Um, anise hyssop, not quite as hardy, but pretty good. Uh, tends to self-sow on some years. And arugula. That'll go really nice and wild and just kind of be a food source. It gets pretty bitter after a while, but it's still nice. And the flowers are amazing late season for bees. Probably the latest flower, like into November on most years pretty easily. Uh, especially Sylvetta arugula. Mainly Sylvetta arugula. Um, those are the main ones. I mean, there's some stuff that self-sows, which you might not want, some perennial vegetables that get pretty vigorous and could really kind of take over. Um, those are often also from root shoots, too, but and, and self-sowing. So be a little careful with those. Um, some of the docks and dock family stuff can go a little nuts. Um those are probably the main ones. I'm sure there's many more in a more of a zone five, zone six climate, but if you're depending where you are in Maine, closer to where I am in central Vermont, like zone four, five A, you know, it kind of limits to um to those. But yeah, good luck. So what I've basically found is if we allow plants to grow to maturity and go to seed Almost anything that can reseed itself and become self-sustaining in a climatic zone will, across time, do so 
if we're building up the overall fertility and we're giving an environment where that can happen. So, for instance, if you have, like, I free-range my ducks and my geese, and so comfrey won't do that here because wherever it grows, they will keep eating it until it's gone. If I had controlled them with more rotation like I used to, then maybe we could establish it, right? But as long as you don't have something that eats it and you continually develop the fertility and the biodiversity of a system, it will. I have the third year now, I have carrots coming up in my swales. Carrots. They, it was so strange to me that they showed up because I threw a bunch of carrot seed in the swales at one time when I did a drop, chop and drop, and I never got any the next year. They just didn't show up. And it was so strange to me, like, a year later when they did in that cool cycle in our climate that I was like, what is this plant? And I finally, like, yanked one out of the ground. I was like, there's actually a video where it's like, the mystery plant is just carrot, I think is what it's called. And I finally, like, I don't know what this thing is. It's like parsley, but it's not parsley. It could be wild carrot. It could be something in the parsley. And I just yank it out of the ground. It's big, beautiful Nantes carrots. So anything, given enough time, if it can survive and overwinter and has enough growth cycle to go back to reseed in your climate can. And as far as flowers, which is kind of where this was angled from, it's a great thing to simply do is Google or do a search for edible flowers or medicinal flowers. There are so many flowers we could be using that we tend not to. Here's an example on my property. A lot of people don't know this. The flowers of the black locust tree are both delicious beautiful and well triple thing edible they taste like sweet then they taste like actually they taste of peas like like garden peas then they have a sweet finish and then they just kind of vanish it's a really cool thing and we only get them for a few weeks uh every year there's 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 flower cycles about two weeks but different trees flower at different times we get about a month where we can harvest black locust blossoms so there's always other ways to look at utilizing them uh wild garlic Beautiful flowers, little bulblets, they taste of garlic, they're, they're amazing. Chives, they don't even need to reseed because they're a perennial from the root in most of the United States. So plain old onion chives, allowing them to go to flower, that's another great useful flower. Just a few ads. With that, let's move on to chestnut trees from Doc Bones. What's Doc about chestnut trees? Let's find out. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today I'm going to talk about the health benefits of chestnuts, that old holiday favorite of many years ago, but, 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 I'm doing it for a special reason that you might approve of or might not. Bear with me. Chestnuts are a good source of antioxidants, and unusually, they not only remain after cooking them, but two of them, gallic acid and elagic acid, actually increase once cooked. Antibiotics are thought to be protective against substances which play a role in heart disease, cancer, and other diseases. Chestnuts can also help improve your digestion. These nuts are a good source of fiber which keep you regular and supports the growth of healthy bacteria in your gut. Chestnuts are also gluten-free, which makes them a healthy choice for people with celiac disease. The fiber in chestnuts can also help balance your blood sugar. Eating them avoids spikes in blood sugar, which can be dangerous for people with diabetes. Plus, chestnuts have a low glycemic index value of 54. Foods that are rated lower on the glycemic index won't cause major changes in blood sugar levels when you eat them. Chestnuts are lower in calorie than many other types of nuts, and they're a good source of amino acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, 
phenols, and vitamin C, but also contain E, A, B complex, calcium, magnesium, zinc, iron, copper, and manganese. So why aren't we eating chestnuts all the time instead of just around Christmas? And not just the nuts, by the way. The tree itself has valuable properties. Its root system guards against erosion better than some other trees, and rot-resistant chestnut wood was used widely in fences, telephone poles, railroad ties, and even musical instruments. So why aren't chestnuts around all year long? Well, although very small numbers still exist, you don't see American chestnut trees anymore because they're all but extinct in North America. Once whole forests in the east and midwest could be comprised of billions of 100 feet tall chestnut trees, but no more due to a horrendous blight that wiped out whole forests of them in the first half of the 20th century. If you manage to find chestnuts in the store during the holidays, it's because they're from somewhere else. I found some that were imported from Italy. In the 21st century, however, there are those who believe American trees can be resuscitated by genetic engineering. In fact, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has just released an environmental impact statement and plant pest assessment that will allow the unrestricted planting of new blight-resistant, genetically engineered chestnut trees on public and private lands. If approved, it's thought the tree would be the first genetically engineered plant released with the purpose of spreading freely into the wild. If the plan is accomplished successfully, the tree would improve forest health, increase biodiversity, and provide important economic benefits for local communities. But our history is filled with examples of introducing plants and animals into areas where they either aren't native or haven't been for many years. Sometimes it's successful, as when elk were reintroduced into the Great Smokies National Park. Others, like when the Burmese python was let loose by snake owners into the Everglades National Park, resulted in 90% population collapses of just about every small mammal there. So where do you come down on reintroducing a genetically modified American chestnut into your area? In survival, they say, want food security? Plant a nut tree. But studies have shown that the genetic structure of plants can mutate and exhibit unexpected traits after reproducing. It's also possible that these new chestnuts, as they grow older and larger, won't be able to repel the blight, particularly if the enzyme produced by the wheat gene, scientists inserted into chestnut DNA, decides to shut off in the more mature trees. There's no proof that will happen, however, and the chestnut tree has been an integral part of the shaping of both natural and human communities in North America. Maybe some test areas can be chosen, maybe places cleared by fire for some stands to be planted and observe their impact. Worth a shot? Too risky? Let me know your thoughts. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of essential books, quality medical kits, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So when it comes to the world of genetic engineering, and understand that genetic engineering and genetic development uh, or genetic uh, shaping, shaping the genetics of a species are entirely different. So if you look at something like maize, corn, in North America and South America, it is a, it is a crop fully shaped by human hands. And up until you know, 30 years ago, it was none of it was genetically modified. And the, the GMO proponents always say, well, man, it's been making genetically modified. No, dumbass. What they did was they did selective breeding for characteristics and traits. And so that means that all of the genetics that occurred were able to occur in nature through either natural mutation or through natural hybridization, right? So everything was possible. Wheat 
cannot cross-pollinate with a chestnut tree. So my, I have I have some real concerns about this, though I do see the overriding attempt to be somewhat altruistic. And what concerns me deeply is when I covered this issue probably six years ago, we weren't using wheat with this. What they were doing is, is accelerating the process of the crossbreeding of the Chinese chestnut that brought the blight with the American chestnut that suffered from it. And so what the genetic modification, genetic engineering that they were doing with that was more of accelerating natural transmission. And it wasn't even really being done by saying, I'm going to take this specific gene from a Chinese chestnut and insert it artificially the way that this wheat thing is being done. It was more genetic prediction. So they have gotten so advanced with genetic engineering on the side that kind of makes sense that they can look at all the genetics of all the trees that are in the system and say the optimal cross next are these five trees with these five trees. And they can project the genetic sequency that will come from that cross instead of just randomly doing it and searching blindly for the best result. Especially with, you know, like if you do it with an annual crop, you know, you can find out every year out of your crosses which the best crosses were. If it's an annual crop that can be cropped twice a year, you can find out twice. With a tree, you may not know the true results for 10 years or 20 years. So doing predictive uh, hybridization through genetic analysis is totally different. This concerns me. I, but I think there's a, a, a broader thing that no one's talking about here. And the more I learn about early American anthropology and the way that our woodlands were managed and all these great huge chestnuts, I think there's this fantasy that if we make a chestnut that's resistant to blight, it will recolonize our forest and become a primary overstory standing aside as it used to oaks and hickory and beech. The forests are in trouble as it is, and it's because we don't understand that the forests that we saw when we came here from European continent were not natural forests. They were naturally managed forests, but they were managed. And the truth is the American chestnut had a lot of problems and was headed into massive decline before the blight ever got here. And only if we go back to some level of these natural management processes, which includes the use of a scary thing called fire, that was the primary management strategy that we had, of our woodlands by Native Americans prior to European colonization. And the reason they had to do that is other than the buffalo, they really had no large grazing ruminants, and buffalo don't work like cattle. So you pretty much have two ways to open understory in wilderness, and it's either through the use of fire, burning at the right time so the trees don't burn to the ground, or large ruminant animals like cattle. And so this idea of leave everything untouched and this pristine image that we have of Native American culture is asinine. It results in an unmanaged woodland. It results in a natural secession of woodlands. And that natural secession does not tend to benefit humanity. And it, at times, doesn't benefit itself. And we've also done a lot of other damage. So if we want to recolonize forest, and we want to make that forest usable and beneficial and healthy, we need to not just have a new chestnut tree that won't die from blight. But what about all... like? What about the emerald ash borer? What about oak wilt? What about all these other problems? Where do you think this is coming from? It ain't because you burn too much gas in your Humvee. 
It's because we're not managing the woodlands properly. We're having a human impact without a human mitigation because we think the mitigation strategy should be just don't touch it and everything will be fine. We have land that's been set aside for over 100 years now in our National Park Service that's in massive decline without anybody touching it, without anybody harvesting anything. Why do you think that is? CO2 that makes plants grow? No. No. It's because there was a method on which this forest was guided by human hands, and it wasn't some primeval, untouched forest like we have been led to believe. Just my thoughts. Let's go on now. If you think I'm crazy on that, research it. And if you think I'm crazy about what I'm about to tell you, go ahead and research it. So this all started, somebody DM'd me on Twitter, and it was a recipe endorsed by the American Diabetes Association, which I have called a criminal enterprise. Uh, criminals like other criminals to be involved with their criminal enterprise. They they cooperate with each other, right? They have you know kind of like this 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 ongoing strength by cooperating with other criminals. And many people say they're saving lives, Jack, you jerk. And I mean it for real this time. They're trying to help people. Yeah, they're trying to help people. So this recipe was for sweet and sour cucumbers for diabetics. Basically a form of a quick pickle. Now, a cucumber is actually a pretty decent vegetable for people on the keto lifestyle, the ketovore lifestyle, and certainly for diabetics. It's relatively low in carbohydrate, it tastes good, it has a sweet flavor without a lot of sugar, and you know, included with other things, it can be part of a very healthy lifestyle. So you put actual sugar on it. So this was the recipe that was given to diabetics endorsed by the American Diabetes Association. Three medium cucumbers. Sounds good. One medium white onion. Onions actually have a lot of sugar, but I'm okay with this. You know, The onion's going to be more flavor. You're probably not going to eat the onion as much. Maybe you do, but it's, it's fine. Um, I'm skipping an ingredient. You can imagine what it is. One half cup of white vinegar. I'm fine with that. One quarter teaspoon of black pepper, fine. One quarter teaspoon of salt. It's optional. It's optional because, you know, salt might, like, make your blood pressure go up in some fantasy land these assholes live in. Um, but you know what you also need to have in here? One quarter cup of sugar. One quarter cup of sugar. This will make six portions, and a portion will have 15 grams of carbohydrate. If we take the sugar out, it'll have about two. Now, the American Diabetes Association is aware of products like Lakanto sweetener, which have no effect on blood sugar whatsoever, and the average person cannot tell is not sugar. But they don't recommend that. They recommend a diabetic take a relatively healthy thing like a cucumber and put sugar on it. And I have to say, this isn't a super high carbohydrate meal you know, or something to eat. It's not that bad, but it's terrible because obviously you're not going to eat this for dinner. This is a side dish, and we're already at 15 grams of sugar, because all carbohydrates are sugar. Um, it has one gram of fiber, so we'll call it 14. Now, the other thing is these recipes, when you look at the size of them and the portioning, they're playing a game. Almost nobody's going to eat a single portion. They're going to eat at least two. So let's call this 28 grams of sugar that we've recommended for diabetics. Now, some of you are going, you said this is an unholy alliance, this is murder, or whatever. I, okay, this is bad advice, but it's not that bad. I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. I'm a guy that when I see a thread, 
I pull on the thread, and I keep pulling as the whole tapestry comes unwound, and I find out what is behind the fucking curtain. So I noticed a tiny little thread in this screenshot somebody sent me. There was a word, Davita, D-A-V-I-T-A. That sounds like some kind of great diet advice that was in cooperation with the American Diabetes Association to provide this recipe to tell diabetics to pour a cup of sh- a quarter cup of sugar on three cucumbers they were going to eat that could have been perfectly acceptable for their diet that would spike their blood sugar and cause them to have degraded, uh, degraded uh, biological things in their body. And we all know that diabetics... One of the biggest risks they have is to their kidneys, which are kind of important for life. And then we have this propagation of dialysis clinics all over the United States, where there's, in some small towns today, there's more dialysis clinics than there are, let's say, McDonald's restaurants. No shit, I'm telling you this, right? So I was like, well, who is DaVita? DaVita has one primary revenue model, one way they make bank. What do you think it is? Reading directly from DavidaMedicalGroup.com, Davida Inc. provides kidney dialysis services through a network of 2,816 dialysis centers in the United States, serving 204,000 patients and 321 outpatient dialysis centers in 10 other countries, serving over 3,200 patients there. The company primarily treats end-stage renal disease, ESRD. What is end-stage renal disease? Your kidneys are gone, and they're trying to keep you alive long enough that hopefully you'll get a transplant before you effing die. Okay. Jack, you're making some points here, but is it really that bad? Let me read you some of the other freaking recipes that Divita recommends to protect your kidneys when they can only profit from your kidneys going into decline because the only thing they have as a revenue source is a dialysis clinic. How about, what is, what is this crap they're recommending here? Honey maple trail mix. Three cups of golden grams cereal. Trademarked are, right? Five cups of rice check cereal. 10 ounces of cinnamon Teddy Graham snack cookies. I'm going to put links to all this shit in the show notes. You think I'm making it up. 6 ounces of unsalted pretzels. It's very important that you don't eat salt. Sugar, fine. Half cup of unsalted butter. Third cup of dark brown sugar. Gotta have a third cup of dark brown sugar in there. One quarter cup of honey. One quarter cup of maple syrup. Five ounces of dried cranberries sweetened. you got to have them dried. That concentrates the sugar to the volume. And they got to be sweetened because you can't not have them sweet. And three ounces of apple chips. Again, concentrating the sugar to the volume. And there's a whole bullshit of what to do. Carbohydrates per portion. 39 grams. That's a Coke. That's a Coca-Cola. You're telling a diabetic to consume a Coca-Cola because it's safe for him. Oh, by the way, you know how many portions that makes? 20 freaking four. They know what's going to happen. This overweight, obese diabetic on the edge of going into decline and, and becoming a customer of theirs is going to read this and go, oh, sure, it's good for diabetics. And they're going to shove three, four, five portions, 100 grams of carbohydrate or more right into their face as a snack. I'm going to go shorter on the rest of these just because I think I've made my point now. I hope I've made my point.
I hope you understand how sick this is. Sour cream and onion turkey burgers, because it's turkey, the recipe they give you, 25 grams of carbohydrate. Okay, so you had your honey maple snack. You, you, let's say you ate one portion. Let's say you ate two, because that's more realistic. So if you ate two portions of that, you're about 80 carbohydrates. You had a side uh, with your burger. You had a, these, uh, these, these sugar uh, cucumbers. That's about 95 carbohydrates now. And uh, then we're going to go ahead and we're going to add the turkey burger. That's another 25 carbohydrates. So now we're like at 125 carbs. But you know what we need? We need dessert. We need dessert. How about popcorn three ways? Popcorn three ways is going to include a lot of sugar added to it. It's going to be 23 grams of carbohydrate. But you know what? I don't feel like popcorn tonight. Davide's got you covered. They've got cranberry oatmeal breakfast cookies, but you could eat them for for uh, for dinner for dessert too. I mean, they look delicious. I'm sure they taste great. 31 grams of carbohydrate per cookie. They include a half a cup of granulated sugar, a quarter cup of all-purpose flour. Uh, it also has a whole shitload of roll, oh, rolled oats, three cups of rolled oats. Ask anybody familiar with animal husbandry how you put fat on an animal fast. Feed them oats. It'll put fat on them even faster than corn. And again, uh, this one, 31 grams of carbohydrate. We'll just add that on to that dinner as a dessert because it's all from DeVita telling you this is good for diabetics. What's our portion size for 31 grams of carbohydrate for these diabetic cookies that are made with sugar? 12 I'm sorry, 12 is the, the batch size. The portion size is one cookie. So if you eat two cookies, there's another 62 grams of sugar down your cookie hole. All in, you follow this diet here, right? You're, you're easily eating two, 300 grams of carbohydrate a day. They got a party punch for your ass. Honey maple trail mix. Mmm, yum. Honey and maple trail mix with checks. Yeah, this is great for diabetics. There's your snack, the, you know, your breakfast cookie. They have bagels. You can eat bagels. Just eat the smaller size bagel. It's all good. Completely sanctioned by the American Diabetes Association, a labor union representing physicians, primarily treating people with diabetes. And let's be honest, at this point in America, there are far more people being treated for so-called diabetes with type 2 than type 1. If you're type 1, you were born with this. You shouldn't be eating this shit either. It's terrible for you. But if you're type 2, your diabetes until way late in this disease is completely reversible with diet alone. 100% of the time. 100% of the time reversible with diet alone. I just saw a type 1 diabetic with an A1C of 5.1%. While these drug companies are proud of getting you under seven, you know, and then they coach it with diet and exercise. If you're eating this shit, you're never going to get there. Over seven means you're dying. You're destroying your capillaries. You're destroying your kidneys. Of course, if you run dialysis centers, this is good for business. You have the primary authority in the minds of Americans for how a diabetic company, a diabetic should live, ADA, cooperating with a company called DeVita to put out recipes that are clearly designed to increase diabetes or worsen diabetes in people with diabetes, working together, and the company they're partnered with, their only means of making money is providing dialysis, but they care about the health of your effing kidneys.
This is criminal. It's criminal, but it's legal. We have gotten into a point in this country where because people have become domesticated, because people are afraid of freedom, we equate legal with ethical and illegal with unethical. This is a completely legal thing that is one of the most unethical, murderous things I've ever seen done. I'm pleading with you guys in my audience that think we're full of shit when we talk about keto, ketovore, carnivore. Stop for a minute. Pause for a minute. And ask yourself why people with so much power and money already would be pushing this garbage on the people who are most vulnerable to it. People that are already diabetic. Telling them to eat bananas, which is like just swallowing a sugar bomb. I'm going to put links to all these recipes for you in the show notes. I'm going to wrap up now so I don't give myself an aneurysm thinking about this. The, by the official numbers, the way we eat and obesity as a result of it kills over 650,000 Americans a year. But they care so much about your health that they forced your kids to wear masks for no reason and forced toxic ejections on you over the last three years. I'm going to tell you something else, though. That number's bullshit. That number's bullshit. Far more people die before they had to because of their diet. Far more than that 650,000 number that I got by combining a few official statistics. Far more. Far more. 80-year-old kicks off, what do you die of? Well, COVIDs or old age or cancer. Anything that's not cancer or COVIDs today, they'll just say, well, he was old. How do you know that guy wouldn't have lived to have been 90 if he'd eaten better? How do you know his kidneys didn't shut down and was never diagnosed because he never got medical care that tested for it? And he was eating shit like this because somebody told him it was healthy? His doctor told him was healthy. If you're a doctor in my audience and you're not recommending people go to a significantly carbohydrate restricted diet, you should be freaking, you should lose your license for malpractice. You are scum. Keep listening because maybe you'll stop being scum. You know what you are? Under the scum is more scum. That's you. You know better. You know better. You know this is killing your patients. You know when you tell your patients to go home and eat oatmeal, you're killing them. You know it. Why are you still saying it? Is it really worth the trip to Honolulu once every couple of years? From the DeVita rep? Or the insulin rep or whoever else? Is it? Stop lying to people because it's safe to lie to them. They've created an environment where it is safe for a doctor to tell these lies and profitable for a doctor to, to tell these lies. And then we wonder why they do it. Stand up. Follow your freaking oath, your Hippocratic oath to do no harm. If you are recommending apples, if you are recommending sugar, if you are recommending sugar in any form, bananas, honey, oatmeal, bread, to a person with type 2 diabetes as a medical practitioner, you either need to educate yourself or stop lying. I'll, get, I'll, I'll let it go, because I can feel my blood pressure going up, and it's in such a good place now due to healthy living. Anyway, with that, 
I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to help support us in the work that we do, number one, stop eating crap that's going to kill you and give you diabetes so that you're still around. Uh, but the other thing you can do is you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I actually don't hate modern medicine. I hate a lot of what modern medicine does. I also think a lot of what modern medicine does is marvelous. But I also think that we have the ability to heal many of our own problems or actually accelerate the healing process in our body through the use of herbs. I mentioned on our show on Wednesday, we talked about comfrey and other herbal medicine, uh, that the book that I would recommend to somebody who wants to learn about herbalism is called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. And what I said is, if I had only one book that I could have on herbal medicine, it would be this one. If I had to give up everything else I had, never buy another one, it's honestly all you need. I want to say a little bit more about it, because I got a lot of questions about it after I said that. And about herbal courses. And really, is it as good as an herbal course? I'll put it to you this way. If I have somebody come to me and say, Jack, if you'll sell my e-course, I'll give you a 50% commission. And I go out and I push that e-course. I am going to sell somewhere in the neighborhood of over a year, 500 to 1,000. Easy. Not even pushing it hard. I've had people do that offering to have me sell courses itself for, let's say, 300 bucks. That's $150 a sale, 1,000 sales is $150,000 in my pocket just to tell you to buy their course. But you've never seen me do it. You've seen me offer other things for people that are electronic products for Paul Wheaton or John Bush or whatever. But you've never seen me do that. Do you know why? Because I always say, well, let me see what you're teaching. And when I look at it, I go, so I got a $25 book that's better than what you have. It may not have music and somebody pretty talking or whatever, but in the end, this book gives more value than your course. I can't. I can't recommend somebody. I don't care what it what it puts in my pocket. I can't do it. That's why I recommend this book so highly. So if you want to become your home, your household, your your homestead's herbalist, get this book and work through it. Develop the skills and the knowledge. This is an amazing book. It really is. And it's cheap. It's way cheaper than an online course that you probably won't even finish. That's what happens on most of That's the other reason. Like, i got to believe in an online course to recommend it. i got to believe not only does it bring value, but a person will get all the way through it and derive the value from it. Anyway, with that, if you uh, want to support us again, you can pick up that book today at tspaz.com or anytime you shop online, go through tspaz.com and you can help support us. Last but not least, the other way you can support us, become a member of the Members Support Brigade. It comes out to about $0.18 cents an episode, and there's a ton of discounts, and they will more than pay for themselves. And I'll keep adding new discount vendors to uh, the program. It's a really great program. And again, if you think the show's worth you know, a quarter an episode even, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer, and then you get your money back. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope you have a great weekend. I will be back with you on Monday, and we'll do it all over again. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Bringing you down Are they gonna bail you out To just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way Show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you to. 
revolution 